first off, I'd like to say thank you to <clears throat> um, Brian and the elders for asking me to um, fill in for Brian. I appreciate um, that. It's, uh, it's an honor to preach anywhere I get to preach. And it's a particular honor to preach uh, where you're a member at. Um, but anytime um, an individual, a man, stands and preaches, um, it's a weighty thing to stand behind the, the, the pulpit or the mic stand here. I thought that was uh, too high. Um, I'd invite you to take your copy of uh, the Bible and find Jude, the book of Jude. And I'd like to thank you, church, um, for having me. Thank you for allowing us to, to come and to be such a, a part of the family and the way that you have received our family. Um, yeah. Nervous, I'm going to have to hold it the whole time. It's all right. Thank you. All right. We're getting set up here. So I invite you to take your copy of the Word of God and be finding the book of Jude, the epistle of Jude. And we're going to be looking at Jude chapter, excuse me, Jude verses 24 and 25. In fact, this is a uh, marvelous, marvelous text that I want to, um, want to bring to bear here uh, this morning and, and open up and, and kind of uh, unpack for us. This is uh, Jude's dynamic doxology. It says this, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we once again come to you and we ask, Lord, for grace. We ask, Lord, that you would please minister to us, Lord. Help us as we begin to understand uh, this text, as we begin to understand um, how this relates to us, um, not just in the, uh, the academic world of studying the great gospel truths and uh, theological concepts that this all has, but to really, Lord, how it becomes very practical. Simply put, all theology is not proper theology, Lord, unless it's practical. And so, Lord, we pray that you would minister this truth to us, that it would stay with us, that we would learn it, that we would love it, and that we would live it out. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, in spite of me. I pray, Lord, that you would give all who are here, and all who hear, Lord, I pray that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray this in your precious name. Hide me behind the cross, I pray. It's your precious name, I pray. Amen. Well, Jude's dynamic doxology, uh, this is, a, uh, this is a, a very well-known passage. In fact, it's probably, for most of us, the only uh, verses, the only passage that we know concerning Jude. Uh, Jude is kind of a, um, kind of a tucked-away book that's overseen. You know, my, my wife and I, years ago... Uh, and still, still some today, but uh, years ago we used to watch this show um, called Antique Roadshow. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. 
Um, I used to uh, watch my folks watch it and uh, used to just be like, oh my gosh, could, it, could there be anything more horrible than having to watch the show until I got older and then I started watching it and I got, you know, kind of fascinated with the different things. And sometimes there was, uh, sometimes there was these, these uh, we just, we love this part. There were these prized possessions that were family heirlooms and the centerpiece of, of all that was uh, in their family and they had a story behind this artifact and everything. And, you know, here comes the Antique Roadshow uh, coming into town and they come into town and they bring this with all this excitement and they find out that it's just a copy of a copy and there are tens of thousands of dollars worth of um, artifact as, you know, maybe a hundred or a few hundred at best. Um, then there's the other where you have uh, the family that has moved several times and, you know, a lot of their stuff is still in boxes and, you know, it's just uh, stuff that's been passed down. Perhaps grandma, grandpa has passed away and left, you know, just a lot of trinkets. And so they have this stuff stuffed up in the attic and here comes the Antique Roadshow. It's coming to the, the local convention. And so they dig this stuff out and say, oh, let's find out if any of this is worth anything. And, you know, just, you know, they, it, it has some value. They don't want to get rid of it. You know, it has at least sentimental value. And they bring it and then perhaps at that moment, they discover, man, this is, this is a rare artifact, not worth hundreds of dollars, but tens of thousands of dollars. And to their amazement and surprise, they've had this treasure up in a box in their attic, overlooked for all this time. I feel like Jude is a lot like that. Jude is a letter that comes to us with great, great truths. It is an action-packed epistle. But its brevity, and it's being overshadowed, of course, with revelation, many people overlook this uh, epistle and, and perhaps know very little about it. In fact, I'll be teaching Wednesday. I was supposed to teach last Wednesday, but um, I got really sick, and so I wasn't able to be here. But we're gonna, I'm going to teach this Wednesday, and we'll look at an entire survey of Jude and all the ins and outs and why this book actually is very important and how it ended up in our canon. But for our purposes this morning, we need to know that this, this epistle is an action epistle. Many times it is overlooked, but I promise you, it should not be. It should be valued, it should be loved, it should be studied. And after writing Jude, the brother of the um, half-brother of James, uh, Jesus, Jude um, intends to write about the common faith, but ends up asking, and, or excuse me, uh, ministering to them that they would contend earnestly for the gospel and contend earnestly for truth. And of course, in verse 17, he says, it changes gears after warnings and judgments. Then he says, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words which were spoken beforehand, that the Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, and, after, and that they were saying to you, sorry, it's that time, guys. Tried not to, uh, but they were saying to you in the last uh, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own lust. These are ones who caused worldly divisions. Excuse me, caused division, worldly minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, building up yourself in the most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doer. 
who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garments polluted by the flesh. And then he transitions to this close, this dynamic doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And so as we look at this, and as we kind of make our way into understanding this dynamic doxology, I want to give you two things here. I want to give you Jude's assurance in God's activity and Jude's acknowledgement of God's attributes. You see, we have confidence and assurance in salvation because God preserves us by the goodness of His character and by the greatness of His glory. Here, as we open this up and we see, he begins by saying, now to Him who is able. As we look at this doxology, we note the word now. It doesn't necessarily mean a transition from one thought to the next. The idea of the word now and a strategic location is actually communicating to us that at the close of all other arguments, at the close of all that's said, at all other possibilities, here now we see the great response. There's only one proper response to what has been said. And he says, not as to simply filler, but, or to transition, but to all other, all other considerations and all the other possibilities now to Him who is able to keep us from stumbling. He begins with assurance. Uh, putting assurance in the ability of God. Not drawing attention to our ability, not as to diminish our responsibility, but to put the emphasis on God's ability. And how God is able. And he says... Here, he says, now to him who is able. He echoes several passages, a couple in Hebrews. In fact, in, in, fact, in Hebrews 2.18, it says, For since he himself was tempted, and that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid to those who were tempted. So he's able to minister to us. In fact, in Hebrews 7, it says, Therefore, he is able to save forever. Those who draw near to God through Him. And so He's able to save forever. He's also able to aid us when we're tempted. And in Romans, we have this, uh, in His doxology in Romans, actually several in Romans, we read in 16.25, Now to Him who is able to establish you according to the preaching of Christ Jesus. And so we see that God is able, and He's able on many levels to do many different things. Now, we know this. This is not a new concept to us. But we see the usage of this terminology all over Scripture giving us a, vi- a, a vast um, reality of what God is able to do. And when He says, now to Him who is able. Of course, we know Philippians 3.21. Who shall change our vile body? that it may be fashioned unlike to His glorious, this is the King James Version, according to the work whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. 
You see, he is able, brings a great deal of assurance. We serve a God who is able. You know, you and I, we are unable in so many ways. Now, we boast about our abilities. We boast about our talents. We boast about our giftedness. But the reality is, those are all fleeting. I mean, there are many who have athletic ability, but they only have athletic ability for a season. You don't see a lot of 80-year-old men winning, you know, Olympic medals. You know, there is a season, but even their gifts and talents are passing. Their abilities are passing. There are some who used to... I had this guy in church, he was, a, uh, uh, he was a guitarist, man. He was a musician of the highest order. And here he is now, I think he was uh, 87 years old. Um, I, I can't remember. And man, his hands were all from years and years of playing. Uh, he just had suffered arthritis and he couldn't play anymore. He couldn't even, couldn't even play. You see, he was very gifted. He had, a, he had abilities. But his abilities, of course, ran their course. You see, the reality is God is able, but for you and I, we are really unable in so many ways. The world itself is unable. With all of its surpluses of antidotes and its promises of liberation, the reality is they themselves are enslaved to their own, own vices. They offer freedom while they themselves are being enslaved. The truth of the matter is, is that there's no one that offers freedom. There's no one that offers true ability other than God. God is able and no one else really is. Everyone and everything is subordinate to that truth that God is able. That He will be our Redeemer. He will be our Deliverer. Not us, not the world, not the ideologies of the world. I assure you, my friend, that Islam is not able. The plethora of gods worshipped by Hindus are all unable. Uh, those who worship uh, uh, the false god and the Latter-day Saints, they're unable. Jehovah's Witnesses are unable. All the gods and ideologies of Christian science, Scientology, Buddhism, New Age, Eastern philosophies, anything this world offers us and any spin upon Orthodox Christianity to appease themselves are all unable. And here you and I, we must get the gospel right. We must know the God to which we adhere to, the God to which we subject ourselves to. We must have these things in order because if we're putting our trust in a false God, if we're putting our trust in that which cannot deliver, that which cannot heal, that which cannot redeem, then my friend, we have not believed in a God who is able. We have bought in to the God that is spoken of, of the world, as much, and excuse me, the, God, the gods who are unable, and many of them who put their faith in them will be just like that of Psalm 115. Oh, 115, it says they have gods that they have created, who have mouths but cannot speak. Uh, they have eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear. They have noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but they cannot feel. Feet but they cannot walk. And everyone who worships them and trusts in them shall become just like them. Deaf, dumb, blind, and mute. 
I labor this point because it's important for us to get the gospel right. That we're not putting our hope in a false sense of security. But that we are clinging to the God who is able. The living God. A God who does not sleep. He does not guess. He does not wander. He does not attempt. He is not in need of anything or dependent upon anyone. He has never learned anything because He knows all things. This is the God who is the living God, the God who Jude speaks speaks of when He says, now to Him who is able. Are you trusting in this God? Is your God able? Have you fashioned for yourself a particular brand of God? Have you molded and shaped your idea of God to what fits you and I? We must not do that. We must let the God of Scripture speak. We must let Him testify to who He is. And we must love Him for who He is. And not for who we think He should be. Because we have confidence, insurance, and salvation. Because God preserves us. He does so by the goodness of His character and the greatness of His glory. Because He is the true God who is able. But what is He able to do? Specifically in this text. Well, He's able to do a lot of things, but it says here that He's able, number one, to keep you from stumbling. A version may say, keep you from falling. This is, I just wonder if it was up behind me. Um, got it. He's able to keep us from stumbling. This word keep is the idea of to preserve or really to guard. It may even say to guard you from falling or to preserve you. It's a military word um, and a very powerful word in its own right. And when we look at and understand the usage of this word, it carries a dual connotation. He says he is able to keep you, he's able to guard you, to preserve you, and it has the idea of both guarding against a great threat while at the same time holding and keeping something of great value. It's both an offensive and defensive term. Here, it speaks of keeping. It has the slant towards keeping. He keeps us. In other words, God can protect us. He also preserves us for His good pleasure. And He does so against the vilest of sin. This word is used in Genesis chapter 2, and it's used, obviously in the Hebrew, but it's used speaking of both. In fact, we read it when in Genesis 2.15 where it says, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden and told him to, uh, to cultivate it and keep it. Well then, a little later, after he didn't keep the garden, a little later it says, So he drove out the man east of the garden of Eden and stationed the cherubim and flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. Same word used differently. Uh, to keep and then also to guard. Of course, 2 Timothy 1-2. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him. 
It's the same, same kind of verbiage there. God is able to guard us, to keep us, to hold us dear. We are kept and preserved and loved by God. And for you and I, we are unable in this. I mean, I don't know, you, you guys may be rock star Christians out there, but this Joe up here, I mean, if you knew my baggage, you would never have me preach. I'm just telling you. The only hope for Yogi Taylor is that Yogi Taylor clings to the cross and that God, that God keeps him and preserves him. There is no hope for me otherwise. Because I am completely unable, and I would assert that all of us are unable. Unable to guard ourselves, unable to keep ourselves without the power of Christ working in us and through us. We cannot, we cannot continue to live as if all of this depends upon us. We must walk in the grace of God. We must walk in these doctrinal truths that we believe this promise. Because it is a promise. It's a promise of hope. It's a promise of freedom. It's a promise knowing that God offers life beyond the miseries and the sufferings of this world. But that He is keeping you. He is holding you. And that you, you are His. And you are His beloved. And He loves you dearly. And He will not let go, even when we act like two-year-olds, even when we kick and scream, even when we run to our sin. He says, you are my child, and I am able to preserve you. And I will not let you go. I have called you with an effectual call, and you will love me and serve me, because this will bring you satisfaction. There shall be joy. There shall be hope. There shall be peace. When you love and believe me, and when you hold fast to my promises, there is no greater love, there is no greater hope, there is no greater joy. And what does He keep? He keeps us. And He keeps us from stumbling. This word stumbling, it may say falling. It, it adds the idea of to stumble, to trip, to fall. I mean, that's, these are the words... But the word picture is actually that of a horse. Took a pause, an awkward spot. Of a horse, that's right. <clears throat> and a horse that on a rocky terrain, and as the horse is kind of moving around, um, if that horse is sure-footed, and the horse, even though the terrain is very, it varies, he is not stumbling. Well, this is the language. But we're not talking about horses, are we? And we're not talking about being sure-footed and keeping our ground in rocky terrain. We're talking about going apostate. Uh, we're talking about denying the faith. We're talking about the out-and-out -out denial of Christ. And here, what we see is we're talking about He is able to keep us and to hold us fast. Least we lose our way. At least we turn even down here, I was, we were just talking about this service and Zach was talking about some folks that were, um, you know, that, that uh, the YouTube channel, these guys, and they kind of came out and they just, why they just turned away from the faith. 
Well, why is that? Well, in 1 John it says they went out from among us because they were never really of us. Because if they had been among us, they would have stayed with us. And here we see, now He who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence. Oh, that God is preserving us. Of course, uh, one, one commentator says, Metaphorically, it was used of a man who proceeded unfaltering in the path of truth and did not fall into error. But Jude's figure implies the various disruptions and experiences encountered on the road which tends to upset our balance of life. The phrase does not simply imply human sinlessness, but rather depicts a life of moral and spiritual virtue on the way to glory. Here's, here's where we're getting at. Is that God is able to keep us from long and deep engagements in sin that we can have, and even on our moments, that we can know that God is preserving us, that we are walking in His truth, and that we no longer have to live with the failures that we give ourselves to, and the sin. You know, this doxology is a, is a doxology of a hymn and a prayer of praise that Jude exalts in this assurance that we have. Are you living in this assurance that God is able to keep you from stumbling? Are you living as if your life depends solely upon you and I've got this and, you know, when you mess up, all of a sudden the whole thing just crumbles? Or do we walk in the grace of God knowing that He is holding us? We must have confidence in assurance and salvation. And we do so because God preserves us. He preserves us. By the goodness of His character and the greatness of His glory. There's a second thing here. He's able to keep us from, stand, from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Well, that's something right there, isn't it? That we stand in the presence of His glory with great joy? Man, nah, I'm looking forward to that. I don't know about you. Because right now, all I see is me. But... My vision needs to get off me and needs to get on Christ. And I need to see who I am in Christ, just like we all do. Our vision needs to be on Him. We need to look to Him to make you stand in His presence of His glory. To set, to present, to confirm. Here we stand in grace, but one day we will stand in glory. It's in full harmony with what is said in Jude chapter 1 where he says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved by God the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus. And no one has been able to stand in His glory. I mean, think about it. Think about all the biblical figures that see Christ, that see Him. I mean, just run through that list. What is the common response I mean, Job, Job, God spoke to him in a whirlwind, and it says his insides trembled. Literally, his inward parts shook. I mean, that's, that's terror. I mean, he, he, was, he was terrified to hear from God. Isaiah heard God. Isaiah was not able to stand. He saw God in his full splendor, and he saw him high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, and what did he do? He cursed himself. And he says, woe is me, 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and yet my eyes have seen the Lord. How about, how about Peter and James and John? Uh, they saw Jesus transform on the Mount of Transfiguration, transform into His glorious state, and they fell there, and I mean like slipped into like a comatose state. I mean literally like just passed out. How about John? Himself, the Baptist, I mean not John the Baptist, John in the beginning of Revelation, when he sees Jesus clothed in a white with eyes of fire, it says he fell like a dead man. Yeah, I would venture to say that if you and I saw God in all his glory, that we would have a similar response. The truth of the matter is, even in all that, we are promised this great promise, this great truth that God will help us and make us stand in His presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. And yes, that will be one day, but on the other side, even though we are not there yet in glory, here now we stand positionally with great joy. Uh, we're able to stand as His children. We're able to be confirmed, to be, uh, to be those who are, who are called and redeemed, loved. The truth of the matter is, we are walking in this grace. We're walking in this truth. You see, we, we have confidence and assurance. We have confidence, insurance, and salvation because God is the one who preserves us and He does so by the goodness of His character and by the greatness of His glory. This is the key theme that runs throughout this passage. The church really should only move further in faith in Christ. Not from Christ, but to Christ. That we would have the full confidence and assurance that we can walk in this truth, be kept by God, loved by God, protected by God. That He will guard you and He will preserve you. He will do for you as, as He did for Israel, delivering them from Egypt, yet He will deliver us from slavery. We must not give ourselves to idols though. You know, idolatry always leads to slavery. Or slavery will lead us into despair. It's the product of sin. We talk about it at the home of grace all the time. It's, a, it's idolatry that leads to slavery. And here it leads to despair and hopelessness. It's the cycle. It will, it happens rather fast on one end, and here it may happen slower. But the result and the process is all the same. Oh, my friend, please understand that God will protect you. God will keep you. God will love you and minister to you. Too many, too many Christians live defeated lives. They mope around with no hope, thinking themselves to have no value because they have, are not gifted in this way or that way because they seem to think they lack talents. As if this is the merit of their worth, their talents and their giftedness. 
they're unable to do things that others can do. And so they begin to compare and contrast themselves with others and they begin to think, well, my value is greater than this, greater than this person, or my value is lesser than this person. And instead of clinging to Christ, their eyes are up on themselves. And I would encourage you, I would implore you, church, do not give yourselves to the fears and the failures that you may have incurred. Do not, do not give your mind and your heart over to the what-ifs if you were better, if you were more gifted. All the possibilities that we drown ourselves with and our minds continue to fantasize if I just had this, that, and the other. And the reality is God is here and He is able. And I would remind you that God delights in using the base things of the world. Say, I'm a product of that. I mean, God delights in using the base things of the world. And all throughout biblical history, we see the pattern where He uses the lesser to become the greater. Where He takes that which cannot to accomplish that which no man could. This is nothing less than the preservation of God in our lives effectually calling us, keeping us, preserving us, and one day bringing us to a glorified state. And this is our confidence, insurance, and salvation. That He preserves us. Are you kept by God? Are you preserved by Him? Are you working for your salvation right now? Are you seeking to earn your salvation? Spoiler alert, it just won't happen. The reality is, is that we can never earn salvation. There's nothing we can really do that would ever match the worth of God. But God reaches down, and God delights in reaching in, and redeeming, and molding, and shaping, and what the world would, would throw out, the world. God brings in, and He makes masterpieces, and He makes generals in His army. God Delights in these things. And this brings us to our second point. God's acknowledgement of Jude's acknowledgement of God's attributes. Where he says this, he says, He will help us stand blameless with great joy. And to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I would just add, by the way, before we move on too far, too fast, I would say that we're able to stand and do so with great joy. You know, some of us um, perhaps lack great joy, perhaps lack this joy because we're frustrated, because we're still trying to live this Christian life in our own strength and not walk in the strength that God provides. And those who lack joy often lack peace. I would say rest in God, rest in Him, this great joy. Then he says here in Jude's acknowledgement of God's attributes, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, uh, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. This points uh, less to what God has accomplished and now more to who God is. 
We began with God's ability. Now we're looking at God's attributes. We must first look at this and understand what it is, this passage. This is doxology. The word doxology, logos, and doxa, word and praise. It's a word of praise is what it is. And all of the doxologies, all throughout the New Testament, um, we look at them, they're all, all about, I mean all throughout the whole Scripture, they're all about salvation. And they're rich, very rich, founded in Christ, bringing out attributes of God. In fact, we see it, the announcement of the coming of uh, the Messiah, or excuse me, the birth of, uh, the birth of Christ, we see it throughout all of the epistles. In fact, in Psalms, every book, the, the, the Psalms is broken up into five books. At the end of each five books, there is a doxology. And at the very end of the book, that climaxes with an entire chapter, 150, that itself is the doxology. Here, Jude does the same at the end of his epistle. And he does so by bringing attention in verse 25 to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Draws attention here. And so we see this doxology. Well, is it a prayer to be expressed? Is it perhaps a praise to be examined or exclaimed? Or is it an acknowledgement for us to revere who God is? I'd say it's all three. It should be prayed. It should be expounded upon. And it should bring us to reverence. That our God is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in His presence of His glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. The text literally reads monotheo, only God. It's not written to contrast the two. It's actually written in such a way that it brings harmony to both. Both are not in conflict. Uh, Ironically, the way it's worded is to show their similarities, to show their unity. That is, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And look, look at what it says in the text, our Savior, our Lord. And he's flowering this up, he's, he's showing this, that God, of course, he says, our God, our Savior. And all throughout this text, I don't have time, but all throughout the entire epistle, he talks about um, God, he talks about Christ, and, and of course, he talks about the Holy Spirit. He is very Trinitarian. The term, he says, our Savior, being, at, being attributed to the New Testament, is found... Throughout, in fact, the 24 different times it's used, 16 of them refer to God directly. And then he characterizes here the phrases, God our Savior and Jesus Christ, like I mentioned with our. It's very personal. God is our God. Jesus is our Jesus. He's not just simply, you know, the Jesus, the God. It's Abba Father. Jesus, who died for me, who loved me, called me, redeemed me, and by His merits on the cross, I can stand in His presence with great joy, and He keeps me from stumbling. Of course, we're looking at this, and we understand, of course, our shortcomings, 
But when our view comes to this passage, and when we look at this passage, we look at this and we see our God is able. The only God, our Savior. He is our Savior who redeems us. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, He's our Savior. He's our Lord. Both. It's not either or, it's both. He's our Lord and our Savior. And then he says this. And all of this implies our personal intimacy, by the way. If you are looking at this passage, and if you are bored to tears, not with my preaching, I get that, but if you're bored to tears with what is said in this passage, I would, I, I would say, do not, I'm going to kick this over, do not overlook this. This has a great deal of intimacy. And you and I as Christians, our identity is wrapped up in this verse. Do not be apathetic. Do not look at this with a glaze in your eye as more you know, rhetoric, more theological concepts, but to understand this is our bread and butter. That God is our Savior and Jesus Christ, our Lord, implies a deep sense of intimacy with our King. And he says this, he says, Be glory, majesty, and dominion and forever. And here we have the four things that he highlights. He highlights a lot of things. I mean, you know, he, he does in other passages. I mean, other writers do. But here we have the four things. Number one, doxa, glory. Both intrinsic is intrinsic glory and is ascribed glory. And as we move forward, we understand that God is glorious. And with His glory, all of His attributes are an expression of this. And you could say this with every attribute, really. You could say this with grace, that all of His attributes are a matter of His graces, and He's gracious in His love, He's gracious in His kindness. There's a particular spin when we talk about His glory, though. That He is glorious on all levels. He is glorious in His love. He is glorious in His grace. He is glorious in His patience. He is glorious in His affection. In all levels. God is glorious. And He is so intrinsically. Unlike. Unmatched. Like anything else. There is no other being that is glorious like God is glorious. And You may have had your Wives, men, and when you were married and she was in all of her glory that wedding day or perhaps that first time you realized that this is the one I want to marry and, you know, in all the splendor, I've been through that myself, but the reality is that that only is a shadow of the glory that God has and possesses. That God is glorious in all of His excellencies. And it produces inside of us, it produces inside of us ascribed glory that He is worthy of. A proper response. I'm going to move on here, but the next thing is majesty. It applies to God the Father, and it only occurs three times in the New Testament. Three times this word is used. As he talks about God the Father, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 is really the passage that most are probably familiar with. 
And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, upholding all things by the word of His power. When He has made purification of sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this passage always talks about God. It refers to God the Father. And then He talks about dominion, speaking of His power. His ability to rule. And then he speaks and he says, authority, which speaks to of his right to rule. So our God, our Savior, here now possesses all glory and he has all dominion, that all power and all majesty, but all dominion and authority. In other words, he has the might to rule and he has the right to rule. Both. You know, the difference between power and authority is, you know, if you're, um, you know, down the street and, you know, you've got uh, some incredible Hulk kind of figure and uh, he, he says, stop, the truck is, you know, doing 40 miles an hour and the truck comes up and this guy just, bah, and he stops that truck. Well, there's your display of power. There's your display of ability. Well, then, same scenario, down the street, this truck's coming 40 miles an hour, and he has no intention of stopping. And you get some Barney Five guy up there, and he says, stop. <laughs> that was my Barney Five impression. And <laughs> he says, stop. And, the, and uh, the, yeah, he just keeps on rocking. And then all of a sudden, he holds up a badge, and the truck comes to a halt. You see, one has everything to do with ability. The other has everything to do with authority, and God possesses the fullness of both. And then he says this, before all time, now and forever. Oh, my friends, this simply speaks to the eternality of God. It speaks to the duration of praise that he is worthy of. Before all time, eternity past, here, now, always, present, and forevermore. Eternity, future. In all of time, space, and history, in all, out, I mean, outside of time, space, and history, in all that exists from eternity, God is and always will be glorious, majestic, uh, powerful, and authoritative. And worthy of our praise. And my friend, I tell you, if you don't like praising Him now, you're going to be awfully bored of tears when this life is over. Because it seems that our number one function is to praise and to give glory. Do you know right now, this very moment, and, and a year from now, this will be true. Five years from now, this will be true. The day you take your last breath, what I'm about to say is still true, is that there is a constant praise in the throne room of heaven, of those who are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. A constant and forever praise. A praise was going on when I was five. A praise was going on when I was in college. A praise is going on right now, and it will forever be. And that praise will always be, and it will never match God's worth and His glory. And same is true for you and I. 
You and I, as we look ahead, as we look at the end of this life and what eternity has for us and our future has for us, the future hope that God offers us is hope in Him that we would stand in His presence with great joy. And I'm going to tell you, I, I grew up as a, well, we'll just say the G-rated version, as a rascal. And I've stood before judges and I've stood before a lot of people. I got expelled from two different high schools. You know, I, I went to a, I ended up at this place called the Alabama Shears Boys Ranch for three years. Man, I had a lot of, a lot of junk in my life, a lot, a lot of stuff in my history. And I've stood before a lot of people. And I've stood and answered for a lot of things. And the answer that I have, uh, the answer that, that, that I got from them, and the standing that I did was not in joy at all. And I took it on the chin, took one for the team, took it on the back, whatever slogan you want to throw out there. <laughs> yeah, I walked it out. Praise God, I don't have to live my Christian life like that. I stand in His presence. And when God rescued the dope-smoking drunk, and when He redeemed him and said, I'm going to make something out of you, I had nothing to offer. And you may feel the same about you. Well, I got nothing to offer. No, you probably don't. You think you might. Others may say you do. Not to be hard, but to be the reality is, man, we, we don't. But then the other side of that, the other side of the coin, is that, man, you know what? We have everything to give Him. Our life, our time, our hopes, our dreams, our loves, our affection, our relationships, my mind, our bodies, our hearts, everything, the totality of who we are. And God takes that, transforms the nature, redeems a soul, and makes a masterpiece in what the world would trample on. And you and I, for all of eternity, are able to stand in His presence with great joy before all time, now and forever. We do so with confidence. We do so with assurance as we live this life. Assurance in our salvation because God is the one preserving us by the goodness of His character, by the greatness of His glory. Well, I don't know if I've went over. I'm assuming I have, so I apologize. Conclusion here is, I just want to read one of my favorite hymns. I want to wrap this up with such a beautiful... Allow me to just to read this. Immortal, invisible, God-only wise. In light accessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, silent as night, as silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, you rulest in might. Your justice like mountains soaring above, your clouds, which are fountains of your goodness and love. For to all 
life thou givest, both great and small, and all life thou livest, true life of all, great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thy angels adore thee as they unveiling your sight.